invite you to take a Bible and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3, in the New Testament there on page 984. If you've been with us the past several weeks, Andy Wyatt and I have been a team preaching, you might say, through the book of Colossians. I uh, not only put my faith in Christ, but began walking with Christ and growing in him as a, uh, as a senior in high school. And I had a youth pastor that introduced this chapter to me, and we memorized it together. That and one other chapter from the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And so, as a college student, one summer I was on a summer beach project with Campus Crusade for Christ, and I uh, had a job with a maintenance crew at an amusement park, and I would push a, a lawnmower through what little sand there was, <laughs> what little grass there was in the sand. I love cutting down those sea oats. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't cut the sea oats. We, we cut the grass around these houses and so forth. But I would just go over and over Colossians chapter 3. So as far as, as, far as my understanding of the Bible, the, I, I know this chapter, uh, I've spent more time in this chapter than any other chapter in the Bible. Um, so I have a special affection for it. In fact, uh, the beginning of my senior year in high school, I went to a large public school um, in, uh, in Alabama, there were 400 in our graduating class. In those days, high school was grades 10 to 12, didn't include the ninth grade. And uh, Early in October, uh, and I had just begun walking with Christ, uh, our school burned, and it, it caught fire and burned at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Yes, I know, all those fire drills wasted because <laughs> we were gone. We had had fire drills since kindergarten and never got to use one, but... Uh, the next day after uh, it had just gutted the whole inside of the main building and it was a, it was a huge, uh, huge main building and there were gymnasiums and music buildings all around that, that were spared but the main building where our lockers were, it, it burned. So the, a couple of days later they let us go back in to clear out our lockers and it was all wet and ash and soot everywhere and the, the, uh, the windows were busted out and like any scene after a fire. And so I opened up my locker, and on the back of the locker, I, I had taken a sheet of paper, and I would written the verses out of Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17. And, and I opened it up, and there, amidst the soot, was that tape to the back of that locker. These, uh, not the verses we'll look at today, but the verses leading up to those. Uh, so this, if you, uh, uh, it is, this, this chapter is very, uh, uh, concentrated. The, the more I read it, the more I see in it. And I could have been reading it for years, and I'll see new things, even like in preparation for, for this sermon. So today, though I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, we'll focus on verses 5 through, uh, five through 8. Uh, hear God's word. Well, let me remind you, if you hadn't been here, uh, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church in the city of Colossae. He's never met these people. Uh, but a man named Epaphras had, had heard Paul in the city of Ephesus, had been converted, or at least had really been affected by that. He carries the gospel back to his city about 70 miles away to Colossae, and people come to Christ, and a church is found. And Paul is now writing because he's heard from Epaphras that there's false teaching threatening to come in, into that congregation, that, that local church. Uh, so, once again, he's not met them face-to-face, but, but he has a, a fond affection for them, and he and the others with him have prayed for them regularly. So, here in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a light to our path, and many of us struggle by walking in darkness. And we pray that you would shine the light of your word now in our hearts to bring eternal change, uh, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a proper sequence for teaching, and we find that sequence in many of the books of the Bible. It begins with truth, and then it moves toward application. It begins with what we may say the indicatives of the message of the gospel, the claims of what is true. It moves to the imperatives of what are we to do with this, and that is what is happening here in chapter 3. He begins with your position in Christ as a believer. If you've died, if you've been raised with Christ, if you're seated with him at the right hand of God, then we're to do certain things. Last week, if you were here, we saw that, that to be raised with Christ in the opening verses, I'm just going to mention this briefly, uh, when you put your faith in Jesus as your Redeemer, you come into union with him, and, and you positionally are buried with him, you are raised with him, and you are seated with Christ at the right hand of God, the place of honor, the place of affection, the place of privilege. And so he says that he's seated because in the old temple, the priest stood and made continual sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews tells us, and we looked at this in detail, but when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down because the sacrificing was finished. It was over. And you and I can sit down. We don't have to re-sacrifice, re-pay for our sins, you might say, to gain rightness with God. Verse 3 says we've died. And died in what sense? Well, in the sense that we've died to the penalty because the penalty of sin and death because that has been paid now by Christ and we will appear with him in glory. And we saw that our response in verses 1 and 2 is that we should set our minds on things above. We should let these truths grip us and consume us each day that we were apart from God. We were headed to hell and, and because of our sin and death, and yet Christ died for us. And, and now I've been adopted into his family, and eternal life awaits, and that should grip, grip us, and we should think about that uh, each, each and every day. And that then gives us the motivation to what we come to in verse 5. And that is to put to death. A word meaning to kill, or if you believe in the King James Version, it says to mortify. Randy Neighbors uh, began and pastored New City Fellowship out in Chattanooga uh, years ago. 
uh, he now serves our denomination uh, really with, with inner city ministry, kind of much like what is going on at Strong Tower Fellowship. And Randy served in the, the military and, and in the reserves, and in the course of his ministry, he had many, it was not uncommon for young people to come to him and say they were thinking about joining the military and to ask his advice on whether what he thought about that. He said, well, uh, let me ask you a question. Would you be willing to die for your country? And typically, without hesitation, the person would say, yes, I believe I would. And then he said, okay, well, let me ask you a second question. Would you be willing to kill for your country? That brought a much slower response and a long pause. What we are told here is to put to death, to kill. This is not light language. This is chosen very carefully. To kill certain things within our human nature, within the scope of our actions. I was watching a, uh, I think it was like a 60 Minutes type documentary news thing some years ago. And it was a story about pit bulldogs. And at that time there, there had been some tragic things happen with some pit bulls and people weren't sure about what to make of the breed. We've learned a lot since then. Some of you may have pit bulls, so don't be offended at what I'm getting ready to say because I'm quoting or paraphrasing what the man who was a, an expert in dogs was being interviewed. And he, uh, he knew all the strengths of pretty much every breed of dog. And he said pit bulls can be a great, great dog. And uh, he talked about their tenaciousness and so forth. But he also was aware that it was not trained correctly of how uh, dangerous it could be. So they asked him, and this is a man who liked dogs and understood dogs. The announcer, much to their surprise, said to him, uh, so if you are attacked by a pit bull, what should you do? And he, without hesitation, said, you kill the dog. And the announcer was taken back. I mean, that sounded kind of extreme. He said, what? I mean, you mean, isn't there some other alternative? He said, no, you kill the dog. He just meant once, if, if that's the way it's been trained, it is not going to stop, and it's going to kill whatever it's got a hold of, unless it's killed. Now, that was, that was his opinion. But that's what we're, we are dealing here with something very serious. So when Paul starts off and says, put to death, in verse 5, uh, he's talking about being resolute. He's talking about being decisive. You're to kill whatever is in you that keeps you from full devotion to Christ. That's this is where he's going, to kill whatever is in you that keeps you from full devotion to Christ. Would you be willing to kill that, that aspect in you that is wrong? Would you be willing to kill, to put to death, to mortify your earthly nature? And so it's a call, as Paul was writing to these Christians in this city, these people he'd never met, uh, he's gone from preaching to, to meddling now, right? The, old, the way the old folks talked. And now he's getting very specific. And he wants you to recognize certain things for the danger that they are. And, and for that reason, he says, uh, if this sounds serious, it is. Well, what are the things he mentions? What does he have in mind? Well, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. But he has in mind sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, there are different aspects of 
sinful sexual temptation, which must be put to death. The first is the word immorality. We, from that, that's the word, the Greek word, that we get our word pornographic from. It means every kind of immoral sexual relation. And so Paul's call was radical in the pagan culture in his day, as it, as it is today. As far as being uh, sexually immoral, our culture has nothing on, on the Roman world at that day. Uh, we're probably behind them a little bit. Uh, they had forms of pornography. Much of the art that was drawn, many of the sculptures, were just pornography of their day. And when you have temple, we don't have temple prostitution yet in, in the U.S. I mean, when this was going on, on on a pretty regular basis from city to city, uh, as far as sexual immorality, it was pervasive. So Paul's not writing to any prudish culture. And then he says the second element put to death is impurity. Now he broadens the term. This in, includes even sexual, sensual imagination and and speech and deeds of a, a sensual heart or mind. So that's where sexual and sensual behavior begins, is in our thinking. It's in our, it's in our mind w- with sinful thoughts. That's, therefore, the battle against all sin has to focus at the, at the root. It begins with the mind and with the heart. And there was a Puritan preacher, and a man came to him, and he referred to his temptations. And when the preacher asked him how he's doing, he said, well, I've got all these these cobwebs in my life, meaning he's tempted in these sinful thoughts. And, and, the, and the preacher, the pastor, just wisely said, well, kill the spider. You've got to get to the, the bottom of it, the root of it. And then he uses the word lust. Um, evil desire, the fourth element to be killed off, self-serving sensual desire. Now, we need this today. Uh, I... Um, when you read, uh, you know, I, I, I'd subscribed to lots of different uh, Christian periodicals and electronic newsletters because of my role as a pastor. Some I would read if I wasn't a pastor. Uh, some I would not. Uh, but if we are an accurate reflection, if, if First Presbyterian Church and those that are seated here right now, if, we're an, uh, if we are an accurate reflection of national statistics, okay, let me put it that way. If we are an accurate reflection of natural of national statistics, then then seventy percent of the men sitting here would say that they look at pornography at least once a month, um, and thirty percent of the women it would be much more than once once a month. Um, a well-known pastor in America has called pornography the number one secret problem in our churches. When I heard the past, when I heard that our president the other day said that global warming is our number one problem in America, I thought <laughs> the number one problem in our churches, perhaps, is is pornography, and, and it's ruining marriages, it's destroying relationships, it harms youth, it hurts the body of Christ, and uh, it's not a time just to simply wait and pray. Uh, so. Because this sin hides behind a cloak of anonymity. But the destructive results are all around us. Also, if we are an accurate reflection of national statistics, then one in five of us had absentee fathers. 
they either were dead or they're divorced or they just were working or preoccupied or just, you know, out of our lives, so to speak. And, I mean, most of us had absentee fathers. One in five of us experienced sexual abuse, if we're an accurate reflection of national statistics when it comes to churches. So what he's writing about here has very, very deep application probably to all of us. We're to put these things to death. And then, but he arrives at this strange concept. He mentions the word greed. And you think, wait a minute, how do you go from sexual immorality to greed or covetousness? Here's how it fits together. Greed is the root from which most sins spring. And so it's the desire to have more and more and to have what is forbidden. Greed is never satisfied. It, it never says, oh, that's enough. I've had my share. I've had enough. Greed always wants more. And because it places its own desire above and beyond what God, uh, what God gives. So he calls this idolatry. And the reason he does is whatever you and I put our trust in, that is what we worship. And so that becomes our idol. So when you sin, when you and I sin, we are choosing to do what we desire rather than what God desires. That, in essence, is to worship yourself rather than God, and that's why it's called idolatry. That makes sense? I hope so. It looks like it did. Sometimes I can read you. If I can read this crowd, I can read any crowd. You know, at the first service. Um, So that's why it's called idolatry. So look how Paul says it. Sexual immorality, impurity, etc. When you want something God does not want you to have, it means you love it more than you love God, and therefore it becomes an idol in your life. Whatever's attracting you is attacking you. So we must realize it cannot satisfy us. We must identify it and kill it. We must put it to death. How do you kill it? Isn't that the big question? Okay, all right, we identified the problem. No, no dispute there, Chip. So what do we do about it? How, what do I do about it in my life? Well, there's power in the fight itself. There's power in the resistance itself. Paul knows that if you drop your guard, the Apostle Paul knew if you drop your guard and do not fight, you've already lost the battle. John Owen, uh, many of you have read parts of his works. You've not read all of his works because if you see them all, the collection, they're about that, that many books because my, one of my roommates in college owned them and I saw them on a regular basis, hardbound, that much. But he, in volume six of, of the collected works of John Owen, it, it has a section in it called The Mortification of Sin. Can you imagine a book about that thick devoted to dealing with what Paul's saying right here? How do we put to death sin in our life? And he said there are two times when Christians may think that they will no longer have to fight, to fight the temptation. He said the first is when you have indulged the sin. You've given in to the temptation. You've given in to the temptation, and because you have indulged it, it no longer seems attractive. And the believer, Owen said, thinks that now I have victory. But he says the victory will grow old and the temptation will return. The other occasion, John Owen said, when the Christian mistakenly thinks he will no longer have to fight is when God has rescued you from some great crisis. 
And during the crisis, you cry out to God, you make a vow to God, you make all these promises that if he will deliver you, um, if he will deliver you from this crisis, then, then you will not do these sinful deeds anymore. God rescues. Owen says the crisis will grow old and the sin will renew. So the point is we must be vigilant. It is an ongoing process. Uh, I was uh, listening to a biography recently where uh, a a man who had walked with God most of his life, uh, dying uh, a death, knowing he was dying, so it wasn't sudden, he said the temptation and the doubts and the, the temptation to doubt God were as strong as he had ever experienced in his whole life. You'd think that Satan at that stage would just say, oh, well, go ahead, he's, he's finished, you know, within a few days he'll be dead. But I, I envision my picture uh, of death will be, for me, when the door shuts, that as it's closing, the fiery darts will continue to bounce off for just a few more minutes. And, and I'm sad to say, even though there's great comfort from God, people do talk about how the temptation just gets fast and furious, even more so toward the end. So we must be vigilant. Reasons for putting sin to death. One, it brings God's judgment. Look at verse 6. God's wrath will come because of such things. Now, are you saying what? You lose your, uh, you lose your, he's writing to believers. Look at all he's talked about in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 about our position in Christ. You're saying that God's wrath is going to come upon that person? No, he's reminding them. He's using a verb saying that the certainty of God's wrath is going to be visited upon all who live this way. The references to the day of judgment in Romans chapter 2, where it says you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. Why is this mentioned here? John Calvin says that we may be deterred from sinning. I was talking with a very strong Christian father some time ago, and he was telling me about his teenage son that he knew was on a regular basis having sex with his girlfriend. And I said, are you not concerned? And he said, well, I've told him to be careful. I said, that's not what I'm talking about. Are you not concerned for his soul? I knew the man well enough to say that. And he said, oh, he's a Christian. He's a Christian. I said, but 1 Corinthians 6 says if we practice these things, we do not belong to God. So I think we deceive ourselves. And probably we in the South may be uh, those that that lead the pack in in that category. Calvin, John John Calvin said why he mentions God's wrath here, why Paul mentions it in verse 6. He says that we may be deterred from sinning. That it may deter us from sinning that we will know that what I'm about to do, if I choose to do it, has consequences. And I'm not sure the extent of those consequences. There are consequences to actions. And so the person in habitual sexual sin brings down these consequences upon him or herself. The second reason, he says, to put this to death is sin is part of the believer's past. We become new creatures. And he says, since we've died, since we've been buried, we've been resurrected and ascended with Christ, since all this has happened, uh, these things must be put to death because it's not who we are. They do not bring 
true happiness. Let me just add one more thing about that. We need to know who we are. I was talking with a man some few years ago, and he, he was doing great. His marriage was strong, but it had not always been that way. And just some years before, there had been habitual adultery on his part, and his life was still paying the consequences for it. But his marriage was strong, and I sat and listened to his story, and it basically when knowing him and his wife, I said, why did she not divorce you? because of the way he was living. I was puzzled. Not that I would have recommended it, but I was surprised. And his answer was because she said she knew that's not who I really was. She knew the way I was acting was not who I really was because she had known me so long. And this is what Paul is saying. Who you really are is you've been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ now at the right hand. And this is not who you are. So you're, you're not living like who you are if you choose to live according to this. So put it to death. He goes on. He mentions about five words related to anger, rage, malice. Rage is just a sudden outburst of anger. It's like when you think a campfire's been put out and the next morning you blow on it and it, whoom, it comes back up again, you know, the fire. And, and that rage is just kind of there like that. He's saying put these things away. Often churches, not just culture, but churches have a lot of angry people in them. And, and my, my theory on this is the shallow theology has just really contributed to an entitlement mentality which believe God exists only to bless me and to make me happy and wealthy and happy. And if I'm not, then he somehow or another not giving me what's owed to me. And I'm mad about it. And someone has said that anger comes from one of two places. Believing you deserve something and did not get it, or believing you got something you didn't deserve. Believing you deserve something you did not get, or believing you got something you did not deserve, like problems or health problems or money problems. You're like, I didn't deserve this. Or I should have gotten that. And these things, this is moving in a progression, anger, wrath, and malice, then result in slander, And obscene speech, it's not talking about profanity there, it's talking about intentionally hurting people. Uh, Speech intended to hurt others. Well, how are we to fight it? The way you're going to fight it is by faith itself. He's saying that you're not dead anymore. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. And that... That means there's power in the fight. That means you have resources to fight you did not have before you were in Christ. You have the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And Satan tells you, you have no power. Satan just says, look, you're right back here again, right where you started off. Like I mentioned before, he hits the rewind button and replay and over and over and over. He said, you're no different. But greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And so... There's power in the fight itself. And if you uproot the idol, you need to plant the love of Christ there. So it's not, I'm dealing with half of the issue. Verses, uh, verses 5 and following deal with put off. Verses 12 through 17 deal with put on. So this is the, the filthy clothes we're to take off. And then verses 12 to 17 that will be dealt with later, 
deal with, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, and so forth. So that's the things we're to put on. If you just put off and you don't put on, uh, it, you, you have to do both. It's like if you try to kill weeds in your yard, but you're not growing real good grass, the best way to get rid of re weeds, so I'm told, <laughs> you wouldn't know by looking at mine, is to have a real vigorous lawn because it, it, it blocks out the sunlight that keeps the weeds from germinating and so forth. And so we need godly habits in our life to help block out these things we're to put to death. But the way to live for him is through love itself. I've mentioned to you before something a pastor friend of mine used to say often. God wants you to get to know him. As you get to know him, you'll learn to love him. As you learn to love him, you'll learn to trust him. As you learn to trust him, you'll want to obey him. If you don't obey him, it's really because you don't trust him. And if you don't trust him, it's really because you don't love him. And if you don't love him, it's because you don't know him. So all these things go together to increase your love for Christ. And to think about Christ and to pray to him and, and to ask for help, but to deal ruthlessly with these other things. I have two minutes. I want to put some resources about pornography and Though the, though the title is debated in the secular and the Christian world, it's about pornography and sexual addiction. That's the phrase that's debated. I'll put those on my blog, pastorchipmiller.com, but I haven't done it yet, and it's been months, and I have to relearn how to put things on there, so it may be Tuesday or Wednesday before I get them there. But as a pastor, here is, if you were to come to me or John Kinzer or Andy, these are some of the things we would probably say um, to you if you said, look, I, I've got, I've been dealing for, with years for this and I just can't lick it. I, I can't. I, I want to, but I can't. This is just a habit in my life, whether it's pornography or something related to that. I would try to let make you see that it's an illusion built on lies. That basically you're deceiving yourself. You're living in an imaginary world. Uh, and you need to let the light of Christ shine on that and by the very fact that you ask the pastor that's a positive sign that's a sign that God's at work then I would mention these eight things and then we're done clarify your identity in Christ is there genuine faith and repentance that has to be the starting place I would remind you of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit he dwells in you as a believer he's working to conform you to the image of Christ Third, I'd say, look, recognize this for what it is, as the Apostle Paul did. It's not an illness. It's not a mistake. Uh, it's a wrong committed against others and against God. Fourth, I'd say flee temptation. Uh, analyze the occasions when you are typically tempted. Is it when you're angry? Is it when you're down and depressed? Uh, is there, is there a, a pattern that you can get to the root and stop the triggers that cause this, if it's television, if it's computer. Um, fifth, practice spiritual disciplines. That's a given. But I'd say do this in order to love God more. Six, confide in other believing. If, you're, if it's a woman, I'd say other women. If it's a man, with other men. Because, and I forgot where I got this quotation. Sexual sin breeds and grows stronger in isolation. And the only way to kill it is to expose it to others. And you'll have to humble yourself. And it'll be humiliating, but you'll be glad you did. 
And you'll probably be surprised at the response and the support you'll get from those who love you. That's why James says, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. Seventh, I'd say gain knowledge and courage from ministries which specialize in helping with overcoming this temptation like purelifeministries.org or blazinggrace.org. I'll put those on the website. Covenant Eyes uh, is, has some tremendous resources and articles, uh, very helpful. And last of all, tell yourself the truth. You belong to God. That's what Paul's saying here. He has provided a way of escape. I'm not my own, but I belong to him, and he loves me, and I'm precious to him as his child. And I've been raised in Christ uh, because in the joy, that is your strength. To find joy in Christ will be the most powerful thing you can do. It makes victory not only possible, but real. And to remember that the God who's loved me has claimed me for his own. And why would I live like this in light of the fact of who my father is? Draw near to him. And I'm ending abruptly. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, uh, we're overwhelmed at times. And we see the power of the old man, uh, as the Apostle Paul called it, our sinful nature. And yet, the new man as well. And we know this battle will never be over in this life, but we look forward to that part of heaven when there'll be no more temptation, there'll be no more confession of sin. There'll be no more backsliding, loss of faith. So we pray that even right now, we are here in your providence, and, and uh, we are here this morning and pray that for those who may f look at these verses and say it's impossible, I've tried too many times, and I can't put these things to death. Pray today that even that sense would be overcome with the hope of the work of your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.